0: Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. The Center of Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. So we're very happy to have uh, Dr. Paz now here uh, giving his colloquium, Choosing Between Faith and Heresy. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much for uh, for inviting me down virtually. Uh, it's, it's great to have the opportunity to, in, to engage with all of you. I've, I've, you know, for so long been, you know, reading the, the works of people uh, uh, from your department. And um, so it's a it's a treat for me to be able to um, not quite immediately, but at least uh, virtually um, engage with you. Let me first of all, um, send out a chat that has a link to the slides that I'll be sharing. Um, so if you find it useful to be able to switch back and forth backwards and forwards between the slides I'll be sharing, you might like to download that own cop- your own copy of them and then you can have them for as long as you want them. Um, now let me actually share the slides so that you'll have it on the screen as well. Okay. And um, let me just set up a couple of more things here on my end. Okay, um, great. So th- this this talk um, comes out of um, a larger project of mine. I'm I'm I've been working of late on the voluntarist movement at the end of the Middle Ages, um, thinking about um, w- the, the, the broad outlines of what that movement is. People talk about voluntarism in a lot of different contexts. um, And it's not at all easy to see what unifies these different contexts. Uh, So I've been thinking about that. Um, And this particular talk enters into the debate at at, at just one really small point, the, the question of the extent to which belief is under voluntary control. And that arises most naturally in the case of religious faith um, but um, really it, it needn't be understood narrowly in terms of religious faith. You can plug any sort of faith or any sort of case where belief might be under voluntary control. You can plug it into this discussion if you like. Um, at the end, I'm going to say some things very briefly, probably about the flip side of faith, uh, heresy, and, and raise the question of, of, um, of belief of, of, of the way that voluntary belief comes into play in a case that we would think of as, as potentially a case of heresy rather than faith. But that, that will go by very quickly, I'm sorry to say, if you were counting on a discussion of heresy. Um, it won't last long, but of course in the discussion period, feel free to ask uh, and I can say more. Um, okay, so um, let, me, let me begin. Wait, I must've skipped a slide. Okay, Um, let me begin by introducing some principles that I think are not absolutely mandatory to hold. It's it's possible that you might wanna give up one or another of these principles, but each of these principles look pretty plausible. So first of all, three principles regarding faith. First of all, that faith yields beliefs that are held with certainty. And that's typically held to be a, a kind of a paradigmatic feature of faith, that it yields certain belief. Uh, Second of all, many of the doctrines of religious faith are not evident. Where to say they're not evident is to say that they're not completely obvious. If if you're familiar with the technical medieval sense of evidentness, you can can plug it in there, um, but you don't need that technical medieval concept. It's just the idea that, that, that these doctrines that are part of the faith, at least many of them, are not the sorts of things that from an epistemic point of view, we've got a completely clear and self-evident grasp of. Um, And then thirdly, faith is a virtue. So those are are the, um, the, the, the principles regarding faith I wanna kind of highlight as generating the problem, the problems I'm interested in. And then add to these two epistemic principles. First, that we should proportion our beliefs to the evidence, um, a, 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 an idea that comes, that, that's, that's most famous, I suppose, from John Locke, but Locke thinks of this as just an uncontroversial sort of view that, that, that he expects his readers to just immediately agree with. Um, this is sometimes known as the principle of proportionality. Um, this is the normative version of the principle, it tells us what we ought to do. Um, there's also a descriptive version of the principle that we do inevitably proportion our beliefs to the evidence. Um, And um, one might question this. Um, I wouldn't myself insist that it's always inevitably the case. But there is some pressure, I think, to to suppose that this is normally what we do, and when we're sort of operating at sort of peak intellectual ability, one might think that this is just sort of how our system works. So there is a kind of descriptive force to this as a feature of our psychology. Uh, Again, it's not really—I'm not trying to generate some sort of inconsistent triad or or anything like that. So it's not critical to me that you accept all of these principles, but I think there's pressure towards in in the direction of these principles. And that's what's going to generate uh, the problems here. And I want to distinguish two problems. An efficacy problem, as I'll call it, and a justificatory problem. The efficacy problem is how can someone even have faith? How is it even possible? And and if I flip back to the previous um, uh, principles, you can see how this arises first of all, from from the conjunction of F1 and F2, because what one seems to be trying to do when it comes to faith is to hold with certainty propositions that in and of themselves don't rise to the level of the sort of thing that we ought to be able to hold with certainty. They're not evident enough to be good candidates for things that we believe with certainty. And then add E2 to the mix, the fact that, that what the, the way our psychology works is that we believe things to the degree to which the evidence entitles us to believe them. And that generates a problem. How is it even possible uh, to believe things on the basis of faith? And then there's the obvious justificatory problem. Supposing that we can do this, should we ever, in any circumstances, have faith? Um, and that arises out of the dynamic I was just describing, and then the, the further thought that faith is supposed to be a virtue, traditionally speaking. Um, well, how can it be a virtue if it's something that's sort of doubtful that we should we should even be doing this? And these are old old questions. Obviously, these these you know these are fundamental questions about faith that people have long had. Um, I, I just almost at random give you one example of this sort of question, of this sort of doubt from Peter John O'Levy in the later 13th century, who um, has a whole question devoted to asking, is it possible, and also proper and virtuous, to believe without reason, and, and I, like, I, I mention this particular question because for my purposes it usefully gets into one sentence, both the efficacy problem and the justificatory problem. Um, a, A lot of the work of Olivi's response comes in taking this notion of believing without reason and getting more precise about it and explaining that faith meets that description only in some senses and not other senses. And so you can kind of imagine how a scholastic discussion might kind of work through those distinctions to arrive at an answer to this problem. Now, let me let me give you a historical picture of how I think the discussion goes through the Middle Ages. It seems to me that before Thomas Aquinas, the standard answer to these questions, both the efficacy and the justificatory question, is grounded in in the good old Augustinian theory of divine illumination. Now, you'll notice I quote two authors that are that are strictly speaking, not before Thomas Aquinas. Um, I, I, but I think, Both Bonaventure and Aqua Sparta Sparta are reflecting an earlier consensus here. And the consensus goes up to Aquinas' time and it starts to die out in discussions after Aquinas. And I think it dies out in part because of Aquinas and because of Aquinas' lack of enthusiasm for that traditional theory of divine illumination. Um, but, But let me read Bonaventure and Aqua Sparta. Here's what Bonaventure says. He says, the faithful assent voluntarily Accompanied by divine illumination, an illumination that elevates reason to things that are above it. So, to, to the to the efficacy question, how do we manage to bring ourselves to to assent in the way the faithful are called upon to assent, assent to things that are non-evident? Well, he appeals to divine illumination, that where that the intellect is illuminated. Uh, to grasp things that through our natural powers, we couldn't couldn't grasp. Um, And Aquasparta says something similar. He says, since the intellect is compelled by reason, it will never assent to a truth proposed above reason or against apparent reason, no matter how much the will commands. So notice here, he's accepting some of the premises on the previous page to the effect that that the intellect is going to follow the evidence. It's not going to assent against the evidence unless, continuing the passage, there is some habit, habituating, perfecting, elevating and illuminating the intellect to assent to that unseen truth. And what he's got in mind there is some kind of Augustinian illumination story, something um, infused in us by God that will elevate the intellect, Um, and and, and let me be clear about this story. Uh, Faith is, of course, a theological virtue. As such, it's thought to be infused by God, but the faith that's infused by God um, is thought here to be distinct from any sort of contribution that we would make voluntarily to contribute to, to, to make us ready to receive that sort of um, infusion from God. Um, and what's going to distinguish Aquinas' sort of view is that rather than resting everything on some kind of divine illumination, he's going to ascribe a certain sort of role to the will in this process. Um, that you can see, you can see Bonavent, sorry, you can see Aquasparta here specifically rejecting. Aquasparta says, no matter how much the will commands. So that's to say Aqua Sparta rests everything on a kind of divine illumination. Um, and that's critical in Bonaventure as well as a divine illumination that comes along with the role of the will. What happens when we turn to Aquinas, it seems to me, is that divine illumination loses its central place in the story. And in Aquinas, the, the weight of the story turns on uh, what, what in, in contemporary jargon is known as a doxastic voluntarism. Um, it turns on the wills playing a special role here in, in, in causing us to form beliefs um, that then subsequently will receive, um, you know, in, in the good case, will receive a kind of the, the, the theological virtue of faith but there's an antecedent role for the will that, that in Aquinas plays quite a distinctive sort of role that it seems to me you don't see in earlier authors. Let me read this passage from the Prima Secundae. Aquinas says, uh, if the things we apprehend are such that our intellect naturally assents to them as with first principles, then our ascent or dissent to such things is not within our power, but is within the order of nature. And so properly speaking, is not subject to our command. So, so let me pause again. Aquinas is describing, in effect, he's describing cases where, where, where a proposition is evident, for instance, as with a first principle. In a case like that, the intellect is, is, is essentially just naturally compelled. The intellect cannot help but to assent because, because the thing is evident. He's not supposing that, that the intellect on its own part has any sort of leeway in cases like this. But he says, some things that we apprehend do not so convince the intellect, but that it can assent or dissent, or at least suspend its assent or dissent on account of some cause. Uh, In such cases, the assent or dissent is itself within our power and falls under our command where command is an operation of will. And Aquinas makes it quite clear elsewhere that he's specifically thinking that in a case like this, it's the will that makes the difference to whether the intellect assents to a proposition or does not assent to a proposition. Uh, there's There's no story here about divine illumination deciding the case. He thinks this is something we do voluntarily. And that's indeed what makes it praiseworthy, that it's a decision that comes out of the will itself. It's not something we can will to do in every case, because some cases the the evidential situation will be so clear one way or another that the intellect is compelled. But there are going to be these middle cases, these middle ground cases, where the evidence is not decisive. And that's precisely the case with at least some of the articles of the faith. Um, And so in those cases, there's a role for the will to make the decision about what we will believe. Now... What about the efficacy problem? What what about the question of whether this is something we even can possibly do? Aquinas thinks that the will is capable of overcoming the efficacy problem. This was met with a fair amount of um, doubt among later authors. In effect, that passage from Matthew of Aqua Sparta we looked at already is one of those doubting passages where Aqua Sparta is saying, no, 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 the will is not going to be able to do this. There's going to have to be some sort of appeal to divine illumination to make the difference. Um, Other authors not so wedded to divine illumination go down different paths. And that's what I want to look at right now. First of all, consider this passage from of Fontaine Godfrey, as many of you will know, is someone who has a lot of sympathy for a lot of Aquinas' ways of going about things, but Godfrey does not accept this particular part of Aquinas' theory. He says this, if the will moves the intellect to consider whether the number of stars is even or odd, the intellect is indeed determined with respect to the exercise of this act. That is, it's so determined to consider it, to consider the question, But because the object is not evident, there's that word evident, because it's not evident to the intellect in such a way that from its apprehension, it can form a reason for concluding that the stars are even or odd. The intellect is not determined to either side. However much the will desires or commands it to be determined to one side with some certainty. And however much it displeases the will that this has not been done. Now, I think this is a, a really nice passage. It for, for one thing, it gives this lovely example. It's not the example isn't original, the Godfrey, the number of the stars. It goes back to antiquity, but it's quite, it's quite apt in the present case to illustrate the problem with supposing that belief is under voluntary control. Because it does just seem absurd to suppose that we could will ourselves in a case like this to believe one side or the other side even though on the face of things, this seems like precisely the sort of case Aquinas had in mind where, um, you know, there's no evidence decisive one, way or another. And it's so it's just an open question. So Godfrey seems like in quite a strong position in a case like this to deny that this is possible. And I love the way he puts it at the end. You know, he, he's happy to allow that the will could have some motivation for, for issuing a command You know, suppose I offer you $50 to believe that the number of stars is even. You'd have a motivation to hold that belief. So you might really want to believe it. You might, on the last line of the passage, you might be quite displeased volitionally that you haven't been able to pull it off, but it just doesn't even seem possible that you could. However, Cardinal Cajetan, some time later, um, takes what he understands to be Aquinas's side. Now, I put it cautiously because I think there's some room for interpretation of Aquinas here, and it's not, it's not entirely clear to me that Aquinas means to take the bold position that Godfrey attacks, um, and I'm happy to, to discuss that um, during the discussion period, and I don't doubt that some of you will have light to shed on, on, on this issue about how to, how to interpret it to Thomas, um, but... Thomas seems to take that view. And if, if, if you, doubt, you know, doubt my reading of the text based on the little information I've given you, well, look at Cajetan. Cajetan not only thinks that this is Aquinas' view, but he thinks the view ought to be defended even against the very implausible sort of case that Godfrey puts forward. So let me read the passage. Cajetan uh, says, in truth, we experience that belief is voluntary. Even if there are estimations and doubts on the other side as a result of persuasions and appearances. Thus, uh, when an object is insufficient to determine intellect to one side determinately, without fear of the other side, as in the case of an object of faith, this has to be supplied by will, by moving the intellect to assent without fear. If not, there will never be an act of faith, inasmuch as a sufficient cause. Will be lacking. Um, let me pause there for a second. First of all, the next slide has the Latin for this passage. I couldn't fit it on this slide. Um, when we get to the next slide, I'm just going to skip right over it. But if you've downloaded the slides that i uh, using the link that I sent out, you can on your own look at that Latin if you're interested in it. Um, let's see. So I wanted to say that. Um, secondly, notice There's no sign here of divine illumination playing a role in Cajetan's story at this point. This again, I think reflects the way at which at this stage of the medieval conversation, the Augustinian theory is looking kind of old fashioned and not something that's going to play a large theoretical role. Even in the context of faith, it's not going to play a large theoretical role. Cajetan is looking to the will as the human contribution to our acquiring the disposition of faith. Okay, so let me continue the passage. Um, The passage continues to expressly take up Godfrey's challenge. Nor is it absurd to believe from will alone that the number of the stars is even. For just as the will determines a rational power to either of two contraries toward which it stands neutral, so the will determines the intellect to believe either part of a contradiction so Kajitan just bites the bullet, he hugs the monster, he just he, he accepts what Godfrey took to be plainly absurd and thinks that you actually can will yourself, in the complete absence of evidence, you can will yourself to believe that the number of stars is even. It looks pretty implausible, I think. And, and later commentators or, or later critics of Kajitan. Um, were very harsh um, with regard to this claim of his. There's, there's, there's a literature on this. This did not go unnoticed. People discussed it. People attacked Kajetan with regard to this passage. But let me just read a little bit more. I've marked this as a separate paragraph, but it's immediately continuing the previous. It's a very bizarre sort of analogy, but in a way I think it helps get a sense of why Kajetan makes this bold claim. Here's the bizarre analogy. Just as a physician, out of nothing other than hate might direct his art toward killing the sick. So someone out of nothing other than love for something utterly remote might be directed to believe that for which he has no reason. So what's going on here? As I understand it, Kajitin's idea is take a physician who his whole life and all of his training has been devoted to a certain sort of practice. Even so, you could imagine a very perverse case, some sort of you know, mentally ill person, some sort of psychopath out of, out of hate might pervert his art and send it off in a completely different direction. So switching now to a happier case, someone surely out of love for a certain sort of hypothesis, a certain sort of worldview without any evidence in favor of that worldview, might out of that sheer love for something might come to believe in it. And so Kajetin thinks that the will can have this kind of power to move us out of love to believe in a thing, even in the absence of evidence. I think it would have been helpful at this point if Kajitin had said that the case of the number of stars is problematic because it's it's very hard to understand how anybody could have any love for one side of that proposition or the other side. And that's why that example leaves us so cold and and seems so absurd. But kajatan seems to be implying that if you could imagine a case where someone came to love a certain state of affairs in the right sort of way, then that person really could out of sheer will could be moved to believe in it. That's the story. Here's the Latin that I'm not going to pause over. In general, as i am understanding the debate, that kind of voluntaristic view did not carry the day. Uh, Parenthetically, it's a bit surprising that that in this particular debate, the voluntarist, the great champion of voluntarist looks to be Aquinas. However much you think Aquinas is a voluntarist with regard to the free will debate, he's clearly not a, you know, a a radical voluntarist. He's not as strong a voluntarist, shall we say, as SCOTUS or Occam, for instance. Um, But in this particular issue, Aquinas does take a very strongly, a distinctively strong voluntarist stance. And I think that illustrates the range of what can count as voluntarism in different sorts of of contexts and illustrates the complexity of these issues. But let me press on um, and I'm gonna try to speed up a little bit now to get through the rest of my slides so that we have time for discussion. Um, What we see later on in this debate is we see a shift away from the thought that the will can directly move us to faith or to any other sort of belief towards an idea that the role of the will will be much more much more indirect, that the will will have to sort of maneuver us into a position where we, uh, we come to a certain set of beliefs rather than directly command it. And remember, command was Aquinas's word. Here's Olivi again from that um, disputed question um, that I gave you the title of at the start. Uh, Olivi says, we see that many believe and presume bad things about an enemy more willingly than they do about a friend. And they believe good things about a friend more willingly and easily than they do about an enemy, even when they have greater reasons for the contrary side than for their own side. Likewise, the will moves and directs the intellect to the things that we will to think about. And the more we will or nil, the more or less it is directed or pulled back. It is clear, however, that to the extent the intellect is more forcefully directed, to that extent, other things being equal, it is more ensnared by and united to its object. And consequently, the more firmly and intensely it ascends. Ensnared by, I can't resist pointing out in in parentheses, in in, in inviscerator" in the last line of the Latin, is a word that comes from the practice of capturing birds using lime. Um, it took me a little while to hunt that down, and so ensnared by is really the right idea. He 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 thinks he thinks that in a way you can just you can pull the intellect into certain sorts of worldviews and certain sets of beliefs, but it has to be a kind of strategic thing. The example he gives at the beginning of the passage of believing bad things about an enemy, believing good things about a friend. His idea there is, it's not as if you directly choose to believe bad things about the enemy or directly choose to believe good things about a friend. It's rather an indirect, to some extent, perhaps even subconscious psychological process where because in the case of the friends, your attention is directed to a certain set of situations you focus on those situations and you end up believing good things about your friend. In the case of your enemies, of course your attention is directed in other ways. So you don't have to directly will yourself to believe bad things about the enemy. You just find yourself doing that because when you think of your enemy, your attention is is focused on a certain negative set of states of affairs. And those are the things that shape what you believe about that person. And he thinks we can will ourselves to focus in one way or another as we like and to that extent we have some control over shaping the sorts of things we believe however this kind of approach i think has a certain sort of problem to it that i i don't know that it gets much talked about but i think it's worth pausing over to reflect on if you if you accept the more direct pro- approach that seems to be Aquinas' and is certainly Cajetan's, you you have a sort of a pleasing sense in which you are believing on the basis of faith and you know that you are believing on the basis of faith. That seems to be as it should be, because it seems as if when people promote faith as a virtue, the expectation is that faith is something that will be explicitly recognized. You know that you will be believing things on the basis of faith. I don't mean to say that it has to be like that. I don't mean to say that in every case faith has to be defined in these terms. I just mean that that's kind of a paradigmatic kind of conception of the way faith works. We, we recognize that our situation is one that we, that, that, the, that the propositions of the faith are not self-evident. They fall short in strict epistemic terms from that kind of ideal, but we believe in them on the basis of faith. That's sort of the usual way in which we think of these things as going, but, The indirect strategy seems precisely designed to avoid that sort of explicit recognition that that's what you're doing. Because the indirect strategy is a way of sort of maneuvering yourself psychologically to find certain things to be credible. The whole point of the indirect strategy seems to be a way of avoiding the explicit recognition that you're believing something on mere faith in a way that falls short of what the evidence would recommend. Faith seems to be a kind of a, an honest recognition of the epistemic, you know, inadequacy of the situation. Um, the indirect strategy maneuvers you to um, sidestep that issue. You focus on a certain certain part of the, the epistemic situation so as to talk yourself in to thinking of something as plausible. That seems to be how Alevi how thinks of it thus to go back to the case of your enemies versus your friends, you genuinely think that your friends are trustworthy and praiseworthy. You genuinely think that your enemies are blameworthy and not to be trusted. And you think that's, that's what the evidence supports. That's the usual situation when it comes to one's friends and enemies. Um, that doesn't exactly map on very well to the way we think about faith. But I think, I think there's a solution to this sort of concern. And here's where the philosophy of this talk is going to get the most, get to be the most intricate. I think there's a solution in terms of distinguishing between two kinds of beliefs, what I'll call thin or current beliefs versus what I'll call thick or dispositional beliefs. The thin or current beliefs are are the sorts of things that a person endorses explicitly right now. You know what these beliefs are, you're thinking of them right now. If I asked you to um, consider the question of what state is Boulder in, I expect you'll all be aware that Boulder is in the state of Colorado. Well, now that I've mentioned it, it's something that you're explicitly or currently believing right now. In contrast, thick or dispositional beliefs are typically not being thought of right now. These consist in a disposition to endorse something. And these are often opaque to us in as much as we may not know what we are disposed to endorse until the issue is explicitly put to a test. Now, it seems to me with this distinction in mind that if we're thinking of thin beliefs, it becomes harder to solve the efficacy problem because in the case of a a belief you're thinking about right now, the violation of the principle of proportionality can become so clear and this is, this is, I think, one of the features that makes it hard to believe things on the basis of faith. So suppose I invoke some sort of religious principle, and it doesn't have to be religion, it can be any case of faith, but let's stick with the religious case. I invoke some sort of religious principle to which you're committed. And suppose I start pressing you on your evidence for it. If it's one of these cases where it's not a principle that's completely evident, and yet you want to hold with certainty, well, it's a bit difficult and awkward to maintain this principle if you're holding it on the basis of faith. I press you on your evidence for it. And you have to admit that it's not completely self-evident. And yet you say, I believe this with, you know, with complete certainty. Here's where, you know, I, I'm not saying, you know, I'll be able to shake your faith. I'm just saying it's a case where faith is at its weakest when we're dealing with the thin edge of things we're considering right now in an occurrent way. But when we think about thick beliefs, the dispositional kind, here the efficacy problem can be more easily solved through indirect doxastic voluntarism. Because what can happen is the indirect strategy can lead us over time, over repeated application, to build up certain sorts of dispositions. You have a disposition to regard your enemies with hostility. You have a disposition to regard your friends with warmth and generosity. Of course you do, that's almost constitutive of what it is to have enemies and friends. Um, These are dispositions that we build up over time. If I force you to bring these up to the surface and I ask you, what is your evidence for this? What is your evidence for that? Well, you may be hard-pressed to defend yourself in really strong evidential terms, but you've got a very robust disposition that you've built up over time through these kind of indirect strategies. Um, And what's more, you can be aware, if you're sophisticated about these things, you can be aware that you have this disposition. And going back to the case of faith, you can be aware that precisely what faith is is this disposition. And it's the disposition that really characterizes um, the person of faith. Um, and in this way, uh, it seems to me the indirect strategy can provide a path forward. It's not clear that the direct strategy of willing a belief works works nearly so well. Um, and I was just sort of moving into the philosophical mode of trying to argue directly for a certain philosophical perspective on these issues. But, but my doing so is informed by and inspired by the historical traditions that you see running through the later 13th century into the 14th century. So here again is Godfrey of Fontaine. This is how Godfrey thinks the story ought to go. Godfrey says, the will the will does bring this change of belief about, but he says, against what he, what he too seems to take to be Aquinas's view. He says, it does it not per se indirectly, but per accidens and indirectly by bringing about the acquisition of, the, of a disposition of the sort that by its means, things of a certain sort are done as appropriate and are apprehended as such when they occur to the intellect. And I think this reflects the indirect approach to maneuvering ourselves into a position where certain kinds of beliefs seem plausible and also reflects the idea that we will do that by building up a deep well of dispositions rather than focusing on the immediate or current belief that I have right now. Well, what about the justificatory problem? Um, I've been focusing really on the efficacy problem of how do we even get ourselves to do this, that leaves to one side, the justificatory problem, um, should we do this? Um, Rather than try to answer that problem in the little time I've got left, um, let me flag um, a couple of authors who are really worried about the justificatory problem and offer answers well, in, o- in Occam's case, in, in, as I read Occam, he actually doesn't even offer an answer. He, he more deepens the problem. Um, Holcott offers an answer, but it's a very heterodox answer. Um, so let me, let me look at these now. Um, Occam thinks there's a deep problem with regard to this justificatory worry, the worry about should we have faith. There's a deep problem because he thinks that faith as a virtue, must follow right reason. This is one of his fundamental ethical principles, that any virtue must be in accord with right reason. But he thinks that faith by its nature is not based on right reason. As he puts it in one of his quad questions, he says, an act of will that commands the first act of believing, the first act of believing in the whole process, that first act of will is not nor can it be intrinsically virtuous because it does not presuppose right reason. He's thinking here of the sort of process like, like Godfrey described, like Olivi described, the kind of indirect method for bringing ourselves to have a, a deeply rooted disposition of faith. But he's, he's seeing that the process has to begin somewhere. There has to be a first act that sets us down that path. Once we've gotten a certain way down the path, then there'll be certain sorts of reinforcing dispositions that might make the whole thing rational, that might make it quite reasonable to stay on that path and to be a person of faith. But if you're thinking that there has to be a first act of believing, he seems to be saying here, that can't be virtuous because it does not presuppose right reason. And that's because it stands all by itself. Right? What would lead you to go down this path of inculcating a certain sort of disposition that goes against right reason as he's thinking about it? There's no way for that to be virtuous. And that's, that's where Occam leaves the discussion. He does not have a reply to that worry. Uh, it's not clear what his ultimate considered view is, but he leaves that worry standing um, without any clear sense of how it's to be responded to. Um, Robert Holcott, a generation or so after Occam. He proposes an account on which the role of the will is not to impel the belief at all, but to play a role at a subsequent stage, a stage of rejoicing in the belief that has been formed. Holcott, in fact, takes the radical view uh, that belief formation is not voluntary at all, not in any circumstance. And so Holcott thinks that we can never regard belief formation as praiseworthy. And so in in a sense, Holcott is committed to the claim that that faith is not a virtue. Now, he can't quite say that. That would be unacceptable in the 14th century to say something like that in a Christian context. But he makes a very subtle move to try to explain the sense in which faith is a virtue. Let me read this passage. He says, it can be plausibly said, notice that qualification. Um, Those of you who are experts will regard that as the sort of hedge that these authors will use in dodgy sort of contexts where they don't quite want to commit themselves to to a doctrine, but just offer it as something worth our consideration. But Holcott offers this at great length and I think it's, and does does not respond to it. And I think it's fair to describe this as his view. It can be plausibly said that a human being does not freely believe the articles of the faith, but is necessitated to believe when he believes. Um, and so that's, that's the necessitarian side of this. Belief he thinks is not something we control voluntarily. Uh, it's therefore not something that we can regard as praiseworthy. Although, and this is how he's going to save himself from you know, an impossibly um, you know, um, unorthodox view. Although in someone of good faith, there will be a concurrent joy, a mental delight or approbation in what he believes. And there's where the will comes in because the will doesn't only command, the will has other functions. And one of the functions of will is to rejoice in things that are achieved. Um, and so will plays a role at this point point. And, it, and it's the wills playing a role at this point that makes faith a virtue. It's, it's a voluntary act to rejoice in the faith that we've arrived at um, and, and to rejoice in it is the voluntary act that's the key to making faith a virtue. Uh, And that's how he saves his view as being within the realm of the Orthodox, but it still remains a very radical view in the context of these debates, because it's very unusual to think that we have no voluntary control whatsoever in any way over our beliefs. Now, let me finally turn, as I promised briefly, as I warned to the question of heresy And I think of this as the inverse justification problem. Here we ask, why is the heretic blameworthy? And it seems to me that many of the questions arise, many of the questions that arise for the status of faith as praiseworthy, also arise for the idea that the heretic or the infidel or the apostate is blameworthy. Right? these sorts of issues have a mirror sort of structure if we if we want a story about the formation of belief that will make it blame that will make it praiseworthy to have certain kinds of beliefs then we're going to face similar sorts of questions about the voluntary status of belief formation in the case of a heretic or an infidel or an apostate such that those believers who are doing it wrong count as being blameworthy um, If we follow Robert Holcott, well, we can take symmetrical views about faith and heresy um, and try to find some sort of Holcott-like way out of the problem, but that's not the usual view. The usual view is that there is something voluntary on both sides that make the one praiseworthy, that make the other blameworthy. How do we do this? And, And in what sort of context do we actually say that blame is deserved? I think this is a fascinating question that has gotten far too little attention. Um, I think it's historically fascinating because of the importance of heresy in the medieval context. I think it's something that we ought to still be thinking about to this day, because I think even outside of religious context, there are a lot of places, particularly in in our modern 2020 circumstances, there are a lot of places where people are going around with beliefs, secular beliefs, political beliefs, scientific beliefs, That are just appalling that 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 are that are heretical really that we ought to judge heretical in much the way that the medieval authors speak of heresy views you know that are so repugnant neo-nazi views you know views that are completely oblivious to the scientific realities where we ought to say you know someone who holds these views really is not someone we want to be a part of our community what the sanctions should be for such things is not a question, happily, I have time to get into here. I just want to encourage you to think this is, a, this is a live issue even today as to how to think about heresy. William Ockham, the great heretic, is someone who thought a lot about this in his later political writings after he was excommunicated uh, and he attempts to give an account of how we ought to think about heresy here's a particularly condensed and interesting part of what he has to say he's talking about a correction to heresy which is to say in general when should when should heresies be sanctioned when should some sort of action be taken against the heretic and he says a correction to heresy should be judged sufficient and legitimate only if it shows plainly to the one erring that his assertion conflicts with Catholic truth in such a way that in the judgment of those with understanding, he cannot by any evasion deny that it has been sufficiently and plainly shown to him that his error is contrary to Catholic truth. Now, if you think about this, this is a remarkably, should should I say lax? Um, it's, it's 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 a test that, would make it very, very difficult for it ever to be appropriate to judge anyone as as appropriately corrected for their heresy. Because it's going to be very hard to find cases where there's no evasion to the fact that it's been sufficiently and plainly shown that this particular belief is contrary to the Catholic truth. Occam does give an example but the example he gives is telling. He imagines someone who makes a claim about what is in the Bible, right? What is is on the page written in the Bible and, and makes a claim to the effect that the Bible says this. And he imagines us going to such a person, Bible in hand, pointing to the text and saying, no, you're wrong. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says this, and here's the passage. And then he imagines, well, if someone persists in that contrary claim, they would be a heretic in such a way as to be deserving of correction for that heresy. But of course, that's not the sort of case that we're ordinarily confronted with. It's not the kind of case historically we're confronted with. It's not the kind of case in my envisaged application of this to the 21st century. It's not the kind of case we're confronted with. And that highlights the way in which Occam's test is very, very narrow. What Occam's trying to do, I think, is to respect the epistemic rules. Heresy should be corrected only if it's evident to the heretic uh, that he should believe otherwise. And if we can't make it evident, then we are not in a position that we should be able to correct someone we think um, is guilty of heresy. So as I say, a consequence of this approach is that it will be very hard to find a case that satisfies this test. You might expect me, if you know about my own intellectual proclivities. You might expect me to be enthusiastic about Occam's very lax way of thinking about heresy. I'm not actually so enthusiastic. I think heresy is an important concept that we ought to be in a position to be able to apply in certain kinds of circumstances. And I'm not sure Occam's test is one that's strong enough that we'll actually be able to apply it when we need to be able to apply it. But I think this whole topic is deserving of a lot more attention and reflection. It would be very valuable to do more work on the historical material. It would be valuable to think about it in our own contexts. Um, As you can tell, I'd be happy to talk about that a lot more, but um, let me stop there and see if anybody has any questions. Thank you very much.